You're listening to the Crossroads Grace Podcast, a podcast of Crossroads Grace Community Church. To learn more about our gathering times and ways you can get involved, check out our website at crossroadsgrace.org. Good morning, Crossroads. How you doing this morning? I don't think I've seen that much jumping on stage in a while. That was pretty fun, huh? Um, my name is Ed Applegate. I'm the executive pastor here. So glad that you are here with us this morning. Crossroads Online, so glad that you're joining us. I want you to know right off the bat that our mission here is to lead everyone to discover Jesus and follow him fully. We believe everyone at Crossroads should have a one, someone they're reaching out to, someone they're building relationships, praying for, sharing Jesus with. And we believe all of us have a next step with Jesus, too, that we're all on that journey of discovering who he is, following him fully with our lives, and leading others to do just that, too. Well, uh, we, as Jimmy mentioned, we're in, in our Esther series this fall. We're walking through the whole of Esther. We're diving into this as a whole church our adult student kids services on a weekend we're going through Esther, our Bible reading plan, our growth groups. We even got little memory cards that you're going to receive as you go out each week. Uh, we're just diving deep. We think God's got a lot to do uh, in our hearts uh, through this series, and he's already doing that, and uh, I think he's going to do that today too. So uh, talking of that, we're in week three of Esther, um, and we're going to be in chapter two of Esther today. Um, and we finally get to meet today. Uh, the namesake of the book, Esther, okay? But I want you right now, everybody, grab your seatbelt, buckle it up, because this is going to be a crazy story. I mean, this is like the most twisted version of The Bachelor that you could ever imagine, okay? I, I'm serious, okay? Now, now, next weekend, ABC is launching The Golden Bachelor. Have you heard about this? You know? No? Yeah. Gary Turner, 72 years old, there he is, Golden Bachelor, is going to have 25 contestants for that final rose, you know, um, for to be the love of his life. I, I kind of find it a little weird, to be honest. Um, maybe you like The Bachelor, that's great. But you know what? This, Esther 2, is the most twisted Golden Bachelor that you can imagine. And uh, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Esther 2. And uh, I'm, I'm going to give you a little context as you find that. So last week, chapter one, we met King Xerxes. King Xerxes is uh, a brute. He's misogynistic. He is nowhere near a good king, but he is rich and powerful. And uh, we learned last week that uh, his wife, King Queen Vashti, has had enough of him. And the last straw was when he summoned her to come parade her beauty in front of all his drunken male guests, right? And uh, yeah, that's not demeaning at all. And so she refuses. He throws a giant tantrum, banishes her from the kingdom, and we pick up right there where our King Xerxes is now without a queen and our now golden bachelor is calmed down. So verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. So right away, we find that King Xerxes is in full regret mode. The tornado of his rage has moved on. 
The dust has settled and he is left with his regret. How often are rage and regret just joined at the hip, right? And if his advisors were afraid of his rage, I think they're also pretty skittish about his regret. They don't know what he's going to do with that, and they don't want to lose their head. So they quickly devise a plan to help the king feel better. Verse 2, then the king's personal attendants proposed, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. So an utterly depraved beauty contest gets launched, right? This is the golden bachelor on steroids. Maybe call it the royal bachelor, because angry, misogynistic bachelor doesn't really sound that great. And so in preparation for the contest, a new wing of the king's house is added, we read, the, where the contestants would be readied, auditions are announced, judges are appointed, the salons are full. You could be queen posters are everywhere, right? It has this air almost of legitimacy. But this is the scheme of advisors trying to manage an immoral king. And the sad part is that women made in the image of God are caught up in the mess of it all. But it's here and now, right here, that we finally meet Esther. And we get to meet her cousin Mordecai, too. You can almost picture the TV montage introducing Esther as we read these verses. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shammai, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. And so what we learn right away about Esther is that if she had any dreams of growing up as a normal girl, they were shattered early on. Firstly, she grew up in a foreign land where her kind, the Jews, were treated, weren't treated well. In fact, we see right here that her true name isn't Esther. It's in fact Hadassah. That's her Jewish name. Uh, but that name was tucked away, hidden away, for fear that she would be, her real identity would be exposed. And so she was called Esther instead. And I know what it's like to have a hidden identity. Most of you don't know that I'm British. Yep, I was born across the pond. Um, I have a British passport. Um, I like tea. I like royalty. But I cannot do a British accent. I, it's pathetic, really. I, just, I can't do a British accent. Um, but when my Britishness, somebody finds out about my Britishness, all the jokes come out, right? All of them. Like, happy July 4th, Ed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've you got to go to history lesson to remember why that was. <laughs> or, uh, hey, Ed, you know, do they have dentists in England? <laughs> yes, yes, they do have dentists in England. You know, I haven't heard that one before. But 
you know, but I, I'm a Brit, I'm proud to be a Brit, and uh, you know, I'll, I'm happy to take a light-hearted ribbing about it, but I've never had to conceal my identity for fear of what might happen. But that is where Esther finds herself in. She would have grown up um, concealing her real identity, and it must have been a scary and confusing way to grow up. But worse than that, worse than that, uh, at some point, Esther's parents had died. We don't know how. It doesn't tell us how. Maybe they died of sickness. Maybe it was persecution. Um, we're not told. But the sad fact is, is that her mom and dad didn't raise her. And some of you know the pain of that. Maybe you didn't know your mom or dad. Uh, perhaps you lived between two homes, or maybe you were raised by your grandparents, and you grow up with all the what-ifs. What if this hadn't happened? What if my parents had stayed together? What if my mom or my dad hadn't died? And for Esther, her cousin Mordecai raised her. And we're going to see through this book that Mordecai is a legit guy. Um, and uh, he's got a huge part in this story of Esther. Uh, but as great as he was, it wouldn't have replaced Esther's dreams of what if? What if my parents hadn't died? And so what we learn about Esther is that she had this broken dreams kind of beginning to life. But there's one more t detail we're told about Esther, and that, that is, is that she's beautiful. And so do you see what I mean by twisted golden bachelor? We've got a king looking for love. We've got a heart-wrenching story about a beautiful woman. Except that there's this um, harem part. Yeah, this is twisted golden bachelor. If you don't know what a harem is, a harem is a place or a part of a house or, the, or a house itself where the king's many wives and many mistresses lived. An emphasis on many, okay? And as this contest is heating up here in chapter 2, the king's harem has actually been expanded, and it's really starting to fill up. Verse 8, when the king's order and edict had been reclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge of the harem. So we learned that there's a ton of contestants for King Bachelor. I mean, they're all brought to Susa, and Haggai has the task of getting them ready. But what we're not told is whether this contest is something that they wanted to be a part of or not including Esther. We have no idea whether this is something that her heart wanted to do or not. I mean, maybe she saw this as an easy way out of her brokenness of life. Maybe she was swept off the, her feet by the thought of the most powerful man in the empire giving her attention. Or maybe this contest was under, she had to enter it under the threat of her life. Perhaps she hated it because it violated her morals. Perhaps she's just trying to do the best she can in an impossible situation. It could be any of those, could be something else, but we're not told. Um, and the, <laughs> if this was a TV show, this would not fly, right? We want to know what Esther's thinking. We want to know what she's fleeing. We want to see that one-on-one -on -one interview where she exposes what she's thinking about. But as we'll see in a minute, the author knows exactly what he's doing by leaving that detail out. But what we are told is that Esther's doing all the right things to please her harem boss. Verse 9, she pleased him and won his favor. Immediately he provided her with beauty treatments and special food. He assigned 
assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So Esther is really sounding like the one to beat, right? But for all our charm, we know she has a big secret that could bring her down at any point. Verse 10, Esther has not revealed her nationality and her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Because if her Jewishness had got out, she wouldn't just lose the contest, she might well lose her life. And Mordecai is plenty nervous. In fact, verse 11, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. And I love that little detail. Mordecai's walking back and forth. It's an action of worry or concern. And whether Esther had chosen to be a part of this or not, and whether she wanted to be there or not, Mordecai loves her as a daughter, and he's looking out for her. Now, Royal Bachelor, it wasn't like 10 episodes, okay? This is like lengthy, elaborate, no expense spared production. Verse 12, before a young woman's turn came to go to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh, and six with perfumes and cosmetics. I mean, this is golden bachelor, eat your heart out. A whole year of getting ready. I mean, this is spa treatments, servants, pampering. I mean, I might even start to dream about being part of this in a second. <laughs> you guys with me? I mean, but ultimately, this is all done with one goal in mind, to be judged by the king. And verse 13 tells us how this worked. And this is how she, the contestant, would go to the king. Anything she was wanted was given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. And in the evening she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shaskaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not return to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. So after a year of preparation, the women are presented before the king. And if you please the king, you got the rose, and you might well be queen, right? If not, you would become one of the king's mistresses, never to be seen by the king again, perhaps. Can you imagine if that was the real bachelor? I mean, can you imagine? Like, oh, sorry, you didn't get the rose. It's the harem for you for the rest of your life. You know? <laughs> yeah, this is twisted. But actually, for these women, it might not have been as bad a deal as it sounds. I mean, in a peasant society where your next meal might be in doubt, where life is short and hard, uh, living a life in the harem, in the king's palace, and the pampering of that might well have been seen as a really good thing. Now, verse 15, we fast forward a year, and now it's Esther's turn, her rose ceremony. Check what, what happens, verse 15. When the turn came for Esther to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. 
So Esther, the orphan Jew, receives the rose and she becomes queen. And a huge party is thrown throughout the kingdom. There's fireworks, there's toasting, there's the new celebrity couple interviews on Oprah and the late night show. You know, the king is over the moon. The, the advisors, I'm sure they're pretty relieved. But what about Esther? How's she feeling? Is she happy? Is she sad? Is she fearful? Is she regretful? We still don't know. And to be honest, it's a little frustrating. We want to know what she's thinking. But the author is very careful not to allude to anything. See, the author could have easily said, you know, Esther couldn't believe her luck, or Esther was ashamed to compromise her morals, or Esther tried three times to slip cyanide into the king's drink. You know, some little detail to tell us what she's thinking and feeling. But, and, the, and the author, what's frustrating is the author so far has given us all sorts of details about these characters. I mean, even last week we saw a whole paragraph on decorations that the king had, had made for his party. I mean, it's so many details and yet nothing, nothing about Esther's thoughts and feelings. And it kind of begs the question, as we read this chapter, is there really anything we can take away from it? I mean, is there anything to learn? It's a good story, but what do we take away? But get this, the genius of this chapter is the lack of those details. The key is of what's going on behind the scenes. In this chapter, Esther finds herself in a hot mess of immorality a life of broken dreams and impossible circumstances. And we don't know what Esther's view is, but what we do know is that God is at work. In fact, with all of this mess of this chapter, God is quietly but purposely working on something really special. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. You're going to have to come back in the next few weeks and find out what God is up to. Or you can read ahead. You know, I mean, free country. But the point of Esther 2 isn't to judge the intentions of Esther, whether they're good or bad. The author doesn't want to tell us about that. Almost like those things don't really matter. Because the point of Esther to two is to find a God so good that whatever our circumstances, whatever our broken dreams, whatever our best efforts in impossible situations, even our compromises, even our sin, he can take all of those things and he can turn them to our good. In fact, he's a master at it. Romans 8.28 is a verse I hold on to sometimes with clenched teeth and desperation, but I know to be true. And we know in all things God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In all things God works for the good of those who love him. See, the fact is we live in a world of broken dreams and impossible circumstances. 
You know, maybe you've had dreams break like Esther. Maybe you've compromised. Maybe you've been wronged. Maybe you've experienced tragedy. Maybe your marriage is over. Your injuries mean you're off the team. Maybe parenting is throwing you crushing curveballs. Maybe you had dreams of retirement, but your spouse now has early onset dementia. I don't know. Maybe, maybe like what happened in Lahaina, Maui, you woke up one day to see your paradise up in flames. And now your dreams are turned to ash. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? I know that. This year, we have dealt with immense challenges in my family. Things that we would never have thought we'd have to deal with. Things I would never have imagined. Things that have brought me to my knees in tears on multiple occasions. Facing fears that paralyzed me. Forcing us to make decisions when the best thing you can do is the least worst option. And maybe you're like me. Maybe you know God. You follow God. But this new reality, this feels different. This is harder. This is stretching you to your limits. And your hope has evaporated. And joy is like a relic on the mantle. You know what? I am so thankful we have a Bible that doesn't paint a rosy, your best life now vision of life. We have a Bible full of real stories of real people facing broken dreams and impossible circumstances. People like Esther, people like Job, people like Jesus, people like the guy who wrote Psalm 13. Look what he wrote. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? How long? Don't sanitize those verses. These are the desperate cries of someone experiencing broken dreams and disappointment with God. In fact, he sounds angry at God. And I know the feeling. I've been there. I've been angry at God. But you know what he's doing? He's taking that hurt to God. He's taking that hurt to God. And so often that's different than what we do. With our pain, with our disappointment, with our anger, so often we just try to deaden it. It hurts to hurt. And so instead of allowing ourselves to hurt, we cover it over. We turn to all sorts of things for relief and we become addicts to whatever provides it. And we end up with hurts, habits, and hang-ups as we try to deaden our pain. But the problem with deadening our pain means we deaden our desires. And without desires, we can't have relationships and we can't know God. If you're facing broken dreams, take your pain to God. Hurt in the presence of God. Hurt in the presence of a few safe people. Not everyone needs to see your brokenness. Not everyone can handle it with empathy and grace. But you need to get it out. Don't deaden your pain. Express it to God. And it's actually in that despair and that hurt before God that you will discover God in a whole new way. As Larry Crabb, counselor and author, wrote in his excellent book, Shattered Dreams, he said, scream and holler until the terror of life so weighs you down that you discover solid ground beneath your feet. 
The solid ground isn't doctrine, it's him. The reality is that in our broken dreams, we have the opportunity to find God in a way we would never been able to see him without them. I've been there this year, hollering at God. And while I don't understand it all, while I don't really see the good, yet that he is working, I trust him today. And I know he cares for me in my hurt. But broken dreams and impossible circumstances don't just lead to hurt. It can also lead to fear. Esther would have faced a lot of fear in her young life. And as I mentioned, this year has been a lot of fear for me too. And a story that has helped me often this year, as I've recalled it, is 2 Chronicles 20. In this story, the Israelites get word that this huge army is coming towards them with the one goal of destroying them. And for some reason, that fills them with fear. <laughs> no, they are freaked out. And they all gather together in prayer. And this is what they say to God. 2 Chronicles 20. We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. We don't know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Doesn't that just sum up so much the Christian life when we're facing those broken dreams and impossible situations? You're stepping out into the dark with utter dependence on God. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. There's desperation in those words, but there's also trust. There's this feeling of lostness, but there's also security. There's fear, but there's hope. There's so much of the reality of the tension of walking this journey we call the Christian life in those words. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So how does God respond to this desperate cry? Does he say, buck up and figure it out, you pansies? No, God doesn't say that. I love how he reassures them. Verse 15, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army. For the battle is not yours, but God's. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. For the battle is not yours, but God's. I don't know what battle you're facing, what dreams are broken, what fears are paralyzing you. But the battle belongs to the Lord. You can trust him. Don't fear. Don't be discouraged. And believe me, I know how hard that is. But this is God's battle. Trust him. He is all you need. He will fight your battle. I love the quote by... Holocaust survivor, Corey Ten Boom. If you talk about broken dreams, that's a broken dream. But later in life, she wrote this. You may never know that Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Amen. Our broken dreams, our impossible circumstances are a chance to discover Jesus in a whole new way, to plunge new levels of trust to discover that he is all we need. See, the reality is he can handle your hurt 
and he will fight your battles because he's always working for your good. You know, when the flames died out in Lahaina, Maui, the smoke cleared, the ash settled. Amidst the devastation, there was this powerful picture that became almost like a beacon of hope. This church somehow miraculously was still standing. Untouched by the flames, it withstood the battle and survived. To me, that's a powerful image of how through our dreams, though our dreams may lie in ash, though our paradise may be up in flames, God will never abandon you. He will never forsake you. And he will never, ever stop working for your good. Three things I want to encourage you to do this week as part of our Tag Your It moment. I want you to take your pain to God. Scream and holler if you need to. Take it to him. Express it to him. Don't deaden it. I want you to trust God with your battles. He will fight for you. Trust him with your battles. And I want you to memorize Romans 8.28. We'll give you a card as you exit today. In all things, in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I want you to put it on your dash. I want you to put it in your mirror where you get ready in the morning. I don't know. Put it somewhere and read it, pray it, trust God that he is with you. He is always working for your good. A while back, I, I read this verse about dreams. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, when you read a verse and sometimes you're like, I never read that before it, or just never hit you or struck you. It's this curious phrase. It's in Acts chapter 2. It's when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the disciples and the church begins. And Peter's giving this sermon. Uh, and he quotes the Old Testament. And he says this. He says, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. And your old men will dream dreams. Your old men will dream dreams. Think about it. That's a strange thing, right? Old men don't dream. They're at the end. They may... Yeah, it's funny. Yeah. <laughs> They're at the end, right? They're, they may look back. They may have regrets. They may enjoy the fruit of their labor. But they don't dream. Dreaming's about the future. And the phrase doesn't make sense unless there's something more for them to dream about. Something beyond this life. You see, for God's people, the true dream is not about the here and now. The true dream is about what's to come. Our broken dreams may never be resolved in this life. But for those of us who know God, there's a dream that cannot be shattered. A dream of tears wiped away where pain becomes the relic on the mantle and joy fills our heart. A dream of eternity with Jesus. And it's a dream we don't have to earn because it's a dream that Jesus achieved for us on the cross. And in the blink of an eye when we pass away or Jesus comes to get us, that dream will become the reality. 
It will be so real, so vivid, so wonderful that it will make this life with its broken dreams and its impossible circumstances seem like just a distant memory. Jesus has a dream for us, a dream for you, a dream for me, to be with him forever. And he left heaven, he went to the cross so that we broken people who don't deserve anything could have life forever with him. That's the real dream. And we're gonna celebrate that sacrifice today as we do every week by taking communion together. But let's pray as we prepare to do that. Jesus, thank you that you're always working for our good. Lord, I don't know all the people in this room. I don't know all the circumstances, the broken dreams, the impossible situations, the regrets, the hardships, the situations that feel like, how could God ever turn this to good? But Lord, I know you can. I know in all things you work for the good of those who love you. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would take our pain to you, that we would express our hurt to you. We wouldn't deaden it. We wouldn't try to cover it over with all sorts of things that might bring temporary relief, but we would take it to you. Lord, I pray we would trust you with our battles, that we wouldn't take up our battles, but we would say, Lord, this is your battle and I trust you to fight my battles. And Lord, even when we don't see the good, may we trust you and say, you are working for our good. And we thank you that we know that that is true because you went to the cross for us. You didn't hold back, but you gave everything for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How I long to breathe the air of heaven Where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets To look upon the one who bled to save me And walk with him for all eternity
join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. Oh, with one voice, a thousand generations sing worthy. There's going to be a day. There's going to be a day where King Jesus leads us in communion. Uh, and you're going to see the love in his eyes. Um, can't wait for that. He's way different than King Xerxes, I can tell you that. He loves you. And uh, you can trust him with your broken dreams. You can trust him with your impossible circumstances. Because he went all the way from heaven to the cross for you. And he's a good king. So we take the bread and we remember his body given for us. And we take the cup and we remember his blood spilled for our sin, for the forgiveness of our sin, for our brokenness. Jesus, you are a good, good king. We love you. We give you our trust and our praise. We say you are holy. And we're going to shout that today. We're going to shout that tomorrow. We're going to shout that for the rest of our life. And we can't wait to that day where our eyes meet with yours. And we see you face to face. Praise be to your name. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. Tag your it. Thank you for joining us this week on the Crossroads Grace podcast. If you enjoyed this message, please rate us and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening from. 
If you are interested in getting involved in our community or want to find out more information, visit us online at crossroadsgrace.org. Thank you for listening to the Crossroads Grace podcast. 